Well, let's open with prayer. Dear Father, we're thankful again to, to be here in this place. You are so good to us. You are so gracious. We thank you that we have your word in our own language that we can understand and love and follow. We thank you that you've opened our eyes to understand the gospel. We pray that as we learn more this morning about how the Bible gets translated into English, that you would help us to love your word even more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember being a child and when I was a, a kid. I think our church still used the King James Version a lot back in the last millennium. But the first verse of Psalm 23 confused me. How does it go? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And I thought, well, I don't want broccoli. I don't want a spanking. I say I don't want something, it means I don't desire it. It's something that, that I don't like. And the verse made it sounds like, I don't want the Lord. I, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The implication is there for a little mind, I don't want the Lord. And I figured it would under, make sense to me someday, but I didn't think to ask a grown-up, I don't think. But it just shows how language changes over time. And So we'd expect that we would need to update our Bible translations from time to time for various reasons. And this morning we'll look at a couple of questions related to this. And I'll admit this isn't much in depth. We could do a whole long series, which I don't want to do on this topic. We could do a college-level course on this, and, and there, there are, I'm sure. But just to give you a taste of the kind of things that translators have to think about. And one question is, why do we need new translations? Another question is, what are the ways of making a new translation, or maybe a philosophy or a methodology of new translation? So first, let's talk for a bit about why we need a new translation. Well, one is, we have a better understanding of the source language, in this case, Hebrew and Greek and some Aramaic. As time goes on, we have a better understanding of the history, the language, the culture, uh, back in the time of the uh, Old Testament or New Testament, and it gives insight into uh, to our manuscripts, Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. We also... Uh, by the way, we, we have um, many secular Greek manuscripts that were found in the late 1800s and since then. These many papyri were found in huge caches in Egypt and other places. Things that the writer, the translators of the King James had no idea about. So we know more about the common Greek of, of Jesus' day than the King James translators did. We also have more and better manuscripts. You might remember that we talked a couple weeks ago about the King James had only a few Greek manuscripts. The translators had a few Greek manuscripts, and now we have thousands more in the New Testament, plus we have the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Old Testament. So we have a lot more manuscripts to look at. Uh, One example of how the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, helped us understand better, and, and there are a lot of these, but just as an example, the King James of Isaiah 21.8 says, and he cried a lion, or he cried as a lion, maybe roared as a lion, my lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime. But a more modern translation, based on some Dead Sea Scrolls, goes like this. Then the lookout called, O lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower. So there's a, a textual variant in the, the text that the King James translated used um, versus what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I forget the exact Hebrew, but it's a fairly similar kind of word. But this second one makes more sense to say, 
that the lookout called instead of something about a lion being put in there. Another example in the, the New Testament that we looked at, again, a couple weeks ago, was in the King James, First uh, John 5, 7, and 8. There's a section in the middle here talking about the, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth. I've underlined it in this slide here. It's not in the best manuscripts. It's only in very late Greek manuscripts that we see this. And so this section here, while it would be nice to be able to use this as a defense of the Trinity, it's really not in the original text. So we, the, the modern translations will take it out or at least put it in brackets. Another reason we might need a new translation is that there are uh, changes in the target language. That's maybe the most common one. We have things like dead words, archaic words. Um, dead words are words that nobody uses anymore. Archaic words are words you might see from time to time, but aren't very common or archaic usages of words. So things like the, thou, thy, ye, these words are in the, New, in the King James. In fact, it stayed in the NASB until the 1995 edition when addressing the deity in prayer, for example. still uses thou and thee for prayer. But there are words like this. And I, I could go on and on about this. I could probably do this all day. But just a, a few examples. Uh, Exodus 28.13 says, Thou shalt make ouches of gold. Anybody know what an ouch is? Like, ouch on your finger? This means that it's translated filigree settings in the New American Standard. Um, Job 9.25 says, Now my days are swifter than a post. Now, swifter than a post doesn't sound like very fast, because a post just stands still. But this means a runner. It's like you might post a watchman and he, or a runner and he runs. Um, Job 9.33 says, Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. And the word daysman means umpire. You could have a, a baseball Daysman, maybe we could use that term for a while. Job 41.8. Speaking of Leviathan, the great sea creature, it says, By his kneesings, a light doth shine. And it almost sounds like the, the modern word sneezings. By his sneezes, a light doth shine. But this uses the term, by his kneesings. Psalm 4.2. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? And that's a term that means deception. We know of leasing like you might lease a, a house or an office, but this means deception. Maybe you've known some deceptive leasing agents, but that's not what this word means. Um, Isaiah fourteen twenty three. I will also make it a possession for the bittern. Now, that's a kind of bird, but NASB says hedgehog, so there's some question about what this animal actually is and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the besom of destruction. Anybody know what a besom is before they see it in the brackets here? It's a word for broom. I will, you can kind of guess. I will sweep it with the besom of destruction, the broom of destruction. A couple of New Testament examples. Mark ten fourteen. And Jesus saw it. He was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such of such is the kingdom of God. This also confused me as a child. Why do you want a child to suffer? That doesn't sound very nice, but it just means allow. Uh, John eleven twenty nine. This one uh, is just more funny, I think. Uh, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone, Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. So it's hard not to hear this verse read in a serious passage 
and not chuckle a bit when you see the word stinketh in there. 1 Corinthians 10.25, whatever is sold in the shambles that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. This word shambles is a word for a meat market. And then one last one here, 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be curious. Courteous. Now, if you say somebody's pitiful, is that a, a good thing? No, that means they are to be pitied, but this means be full of pity. So we wouldn't say it this way anymore, but it made sense to King James, be pitiful. That's a good thing. Being pitiful nowadays is generally a bad thing. Another kind of language change is something you can call a false friend. And these are a little different from the archaic words because they're words we think we know the meaning of. We have the same word today, and it kind of makes sense to us, but it doesn't really mean what the King James writers meant by it, or what the original might be saying. So, for example, uh, Numbers 18.15 says, Everything that openeth the matrix in all flesh. That sounds vaguely science fiction-y, doesn't it? But it's an old term for womb. We would have that word, mater, the word for mother, in the word matrix. Uh, First Kings 18.21, Elijah came unto all the people and said, this is when he's confronting the prophets of Baal, he said, how long halt ye between two opinions? Now, it sounds like when you halt, you're stopping, right? So you might think that Elijah's saying, how long are you stopping between these two opinions? But he's actually saying, how long are you going to limp? This word halt means to limp. And my contact, I think, fell out. Sorry about that. Okay. So halt means to to limp. In the, you might remember another verse talks about the halt and the lame shall keep you out. That that means those who are limping. Psalm twenty two, verse twenty one, save me from the lion's mouth, for there for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. The horns of the unicorns. The word unicorn is used several times in the Old Testament. Some people think it might be a, a rhinoceros, like a, a one horn, um, but it's probably some sort of wild ox. In any case, uh, it's not what we think of as a unicorn nowadays, a magical a horse with a, with a horn coming out of his uh, head. Uh, Luke 10, 41. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Now we think, careful, somebody is being careful, they're being delicate with their movements, like she's being careful with the china, or careful when she pours out the the drinks. But actually means full of care. Martha, you are worried about too many things. She's caring in in a negative sense. So you might see, Martha, you're careful. Well, that's good, be careful, right? We always tell our kids to be careful. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Now Luke 18, verse 1, says this, he spoke a parable, or he spake a parable unto them, to this end, that man ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, we might think fainting is when you kind of lose consciousness, fall to the ground, and you might imagine if you're praying, you shouldn't faint. Okay, that's good. Don't faint while you're praying. But this actually is a, a word that means in uh, previous times, among the actual idea of fainting on the way, it also has the idea of to give up or to lose heart. John chapter 2, when Jesus 
is going to turn water into wine. It says, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Now, it sounds like, if you read that, it says they wanted wine. That means they desired wine. But it's like this Psalm 23, I shall not want. What this means is, when they lacked wine, they didn't have any more wine, the mother said they have no wine. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4. This is interesting. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Now, would you say all those sins are not convenient? Well, probably not, but you might wonder, what does it mean to be convenient? Well, in these days, the word convenient can mean appropriate. These are not appropriate things for Christians to engage in. And one last one, and, and there could, there's dozens of them. First Peter one fifteen, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Now, I read that today, and we think conversation that Peter here is talking about the way we talk, how we converse with each other. But in the King James days, this word conversation could mean behavior. So he's saying, be holy in all, not just the way you speak, but in the way you behave. So you can see these false friends, these words that had one meaning 400 years ago and have changed since then, they can give you a wrong idea of what the the text is saying. It's nobody's fault, it's just the way the language changes over time. Another example of how the language changes is, uh, you might call them obscure or technical words, and this isn't just true for the King James, I'm not trying to pick on the King James, but it's just easier because it's further in distance from our more modern translations, but there's a Hebrew word, a pretty well-known word called hesed, and it's a word having to do with goodness or kindness. It's translated by the New American Standard as favor, kindness, loyalty, mercy, unchanging love, all those sorts of things, but most often in the New American Standard it's translated as loving kindness. Now, anybody use the word loving kindness in their conversations this, this week, unless you were reading the New American Standard version of the Bible? Probably not. This is a technical word that was determined by the King or the New American Standard translators to give the idea of what this said word is getting at, loving kindness, but it's, it doesn't necessarily tell us anything. Loving kindness sounds like kindness and loving. It's kind of in that realm of mercy, grace, favor, but it, it's one more obstacle to give a word that doesn't really mean a whole lot in detail to us nowadays. And so, for example, in Psalm 136, verse 1, you might think that the King James would use this term as well, because loving kindness sounds sort of archaic, doesn't it? But the, so New, NASB in Psalm one thirty six verse one says, "Give thanks to the Lord for His good; His loving kindness is everlasting." King James says, "His mercy endureth forever." The NASB in twenty twenty revised just a few years ago. It says, "His faithfulness is everlasting." So they changed loving kindness. They, they took loving kindness out altogether, and and you have different English words that maybe make more sense. So faithfulness, English Standard Version, steadfast love, NIV, his love, simply says love endures forever. The Christian Standard Bible says his faithful love endures forever, and the any, the Net Bible, the New English Translation, uses the term loyal love. So there's a range of ways to express the idea of loving kindness in more modern uh, words for an English reader. In fact, the King James uses a, maybe a, a word we might know better by mercy than the word loving kindness. Another 
reason we need new translations is because of confusing figures of speech. And sometimes these are funny. Um, King James says this in 2 Corinthians 6, 11 and 12. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now, it sounds like something you go see the doctor for, right? If you're straightened in your bowels. But the New American Standard says this. Our mouth is open, spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. So NASB says affections versus bowels. Now the King James here is more literal than the New American Standard because the Greek word is used of the intestines or the inward parts. For example, Acts 118, remember speaking of Judas, this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Same Greek word is used here in 2 Corinthians 6.12, word bowels. But they had this idea of when you you sort of have a a feeling like butterflies in your stomach, you have some of your feelings that you sort of feel in your gut. And we have that idea today, but we wouldn't say it in quite the same way. What I find interesting is that the term heart here is used as a metaphor for, you can be used of your affections or your mind, different, different contexts. But we still use the term heart today to talk figuratively about uh, a spiritual reality, your heart. But we don't use the term bowels anymore in that same way. So we can understand easily heart in this context, but the word bowels doesn't really make much sense to us. So we translate it better as affections, or as compassion, you are restraining your own affections or your compassion. And then you could have a marginal note like the New American Standard does, saying it actually does mean inward parts or something like that. So literal does not always mean clearer, especially as we get further away from the, the translation time. Another a big factor in, in changing or, or getting a new translation is changing in sensibilities or preferences. For example, if we were going to create our own Pilgrim Standard Bible, we could decide that we we're going to change all the uses of the word sojourner in the Old Testament to be pilgrim. That would be a fair translation, right? But that could be our Pilgrim Bible Church translation. We put pilgrim in everywhere. A more serious thing is stuff like formatting, for example, um, capitalizing pronouns related to deity. And I may sound more reverent at a friend years ago who said he, would, he didn't like some of the new versions because they took they, they would uh, uncapitalize, let's say, he or the word man when referring to Christ. But the thing is, the King James Version didn't do that. That's a more modern way of doing things, and now it's kind of going by the wayside. So things like New American Standard capitalize he, him referring to deity, but other newer ones don't. Uh, also things like putting quotes. Now, the King James has no quotes, so it's hard sometimes to know when you're reading who's saying what. Modern translations will do that for us. Even things like paragraph representations on a page. Now, these aren't in the originals. Remember, even the verses and the chapters weren't in the originals, but they developed over time. It gives us a good idea of what the sections are, even if they're not always perfectly right. The thing is about when you're looking at, let's say my Bible has each verse set off in sort of a separate paragraph, but it tends to chop up the flow, doesn't it? And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it could be nice to sort of see one block of thought instead of seeing things, individual verses all the time, seeing a block of thought. 
Now, the New American Standard has bold numbers for beginning a paragraph, but uh, there's also an addition, and there are other translations that have this as well. You can buy an NASB paragraph edition, so it's formatted differently if that's the way you prefer to read your Bible. In fact, I think I'm going, I, I have this on my computer. I usually read on my computer the, the version like I have here. Each verse is a separate paragraph, but I think I'm going to go to the paragraph version for a while and see how I like it to see the flow of thought a little bit better. Another thing that's come up recently uh, is what do we do about contractions? Uh, like, I'm there for they are. I can only find one contraction in the New American Standard uh, in Ezra uh, 10, verse 2, uh, 12, rather. It says, Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. Now, the word, that's right, is not a contraction of that is right in the Hebrew. It's just they, they decided to make it a little more colloquial, saying, that's right, we agree. The others say, it is so, or you are right, or just yes. So the NASB, usually more literal, decides to put a contraction, that is right, in the spot in Ezra. But for the most part, New American Standard, the more literal translations tend to uh, set aside the contractions because it sounds maybe a little bit too casual, a little too colloquial. But I think, really, it can fit well with the tone sometimes. I mean, if we, if I speak all the time without using any contractions, it sounds stilted, doesn't it? And if we have a more conversational part of the Bible, maybe it makes sense to use some contractions now in more modern English. So, for example, the Christian Standard Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Now, you could see yourself writing that yourself. You probably wouldn't write, I am writing this to you. If For somebody that you really liked, if you were talking to them, um, you wouldn't say, I am not writing this to you. That sounds like you're writing a, a formal complaint to a company you have an issue with. But for a, a warm friendship, you would say, I'm not writing this to shame you. That's how you would talk. And so to use a contraction like that in a, in a Bible translation may make sense for the, for the sort of feel, the style of the writer. Another, oh, I, I did have the example here. Another thing to think about is weights and measures. How do you translate weights and measures? They use different kinds of things back in the Bible times. Do we use shekels or do we translate those to ounces? Do we use talents or do we use pounds? Baths or gallons? There's a term bath. That's a measurement in the Old Testament, but we think of baths as a bathtub. But a bath is a measurement, so we can convert that to gallons. Now, it's clearer to use modern measurements but it's not always certain what those measurements mean. And sometimes it may obscure the meaning. For example, there are some numbers in Revelation that may be symbolic of other things, and if we translate them into modern measurements, it can obscure the translation, or the meaning, I should say. So here's an example of the 1995 NASB, the one that I use. It's in Revelation 21, 16, and 17. It says, The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as a width. And he measured the city with a rod 1,500 miles, its length and its width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. So these measurements are in more modern American uh, units. But the 2020 update says this. The city is there as a square, and it says here, it, the measure the city, it's 12,000 stadia. And stadia is a, is a Greek measurement. And 
they measured the wall 144 cubits, that's the distance from your elbow to the, to the tip of your finger. And so notice these numbers for 12,000 and 144, it's just 12 times 12. These, these numbers show up a lot in Revelation, and they may have some symbolic meanings. And so if you take the 12,000 stadia, or the 144 cubits, and convert it to miles and yards, you may be losing some of the information, you might say, about how this is to be understood. Now, in either case, the NASB 95 has the the more literal in a footnote. So this one says 12,000 stadia, where it says 1,500 miles, and 144 cubits, with 72 yards, where the NASB 2020 will tell you how, how much that is in more modern measurements. So my preference might be to use the the original measurement in the translation, but have a footnote, a translator's note, saying this is probably about this much in our measurements today. Another difference in preference or sensibility would be, how do we treat God's name? Now, you look at the authorized version, the King James Version, the name of God is only transliterated as Jehovah. Remember, transliteration is when you take a word in another language and you sort of bring it into your language without interpreting it, without translating it. You just take the sounds and try and re- represent it in your language. So Yahweh becomes Jehovah. Now, Jehovah isn't the proper pronunciation of that, but in any case, that was often used back years ago and still today. The name of God is transliterated as Jehovah only a few times in the King James or King James Revised Version, but in the ASV, the American Standard Version, which came out in about 1901, they used that the word Yahweh or Jehovah rather consistently over 6,700 times. So when we see the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in the ASV, American Standard Version from 100 years ago, they used the word Jehovah. As I said, but the divine name isn't pronounced Jehovah. It's probably pronounced more like Yahweh. And so the RSV, which was a revision of the ASV, went back to LORD, with all caps. Now, why do they do that? Well, there are the sensibilities of the Jews that didn't want to pronounce the name of God. They didn't want to violate the commands. But when you look at the Greek New Testament, when the writers, or the translators who did that a couple hundred years before Christ, they wanted to take the word Yahweh and translate it into uh, Greek. They didn't transliterate it and try and take the word Yahweh and convert it into Greek letters and make it work in, in Greek. They actually used the term kurios, which means Lord. And so in the Greek New Testament, you uh, or the Greek version of the Old Testament, you'll see Lord, Yahweh, uh, as, as kurios. And so when they take the Greek... When they, when they use the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament, when they, when they uh, borrow from that, when they quote it, they use the term kurios. So say with, with, in Hebrews, we'll see uh, uses of the term Lord that are maybe from the book of Psalms. They will use the word kurios. Now, some people really get... Uh, set on one way or the other. Some say, we, we need to use the term Yahweh, or we need to use the term Lord. Um, it doesn't matter that much to me, but some of you may have heard of the Legacy Standard Bible. That's a new Bible produced by the Master's College Seminary, John MacArthur and some others. And they have taken uh, the, the Lords out of the Old Testament and now make it Yahweh. 
exclusively. That was a translation decision that they made, and that's a perfectly fine one. But for myself, it doesn't bother me too much to see the word in all caps. At least we know in the, the versions that I use what the... In fact, I think most modern translations will use the, the capital letters L-O-R-D for when Yahweh is translated from the, the Hebrew. Another uh, um, controversial, uh, more controversial issue is inclusive language. Inclusive language. Some translations will change he to they or man to person in cases where it's not necessarily referring to a male. Um, for example, uh, in the some translations where the King James might say, brothers, dear brothers, we'll see this a bit later, or brethren, it'll translate it as brothers and sisters. In fact, the New American Standard 2020 edition changes brethren to brothers and sisters, even though the word sisters is not in the, the Greek, for example. But it's the idea is that the Greek word refers not just to male people, like the word brothers does, but it's referring to uh, people of both genders. So let's give that idea, even though it may not be so literal, it's it's a good way to make it more accessible to people who might otherwise think it's too narrowly focused just on males. Now, having said that, there are some there's one case at least where this effort to be more inclusive uh, was pulled back a bit, and that's where the ESV comes from. If you guys had ESV, that grew out of an issue with, say, the new Revised Standard Version, or today's IV, was going a little bit more towards the inclusive, and it concerned some people, and so it was the ESV grew out of that, and, and so it was pulled back to, to what I call it less inclusive language. Now, there, there's a fine line to walk here. You can go too far. Some people want to change the the references to God to say father, mother, or that kind of thing. That's obviously going way too far. But there are cases we want to make it because English changes. There are cases where it may sort of gall us to hear people referred to as they instead of he or she or, or he. But maybe that's a, a, a way to communicate better to people. So you, you can maybe walk that fine line without going over it into something that's that's um, would have some doctrinal issues that we'd be concerned about. Another change in or, or thing that we're thinking about as we're considering whether we need a new translation is changes in audience. Changes in audience. That is, who are we writing this translation for? What's it for? And towards the end of the 1800s, there was a significant revision of the King James. It's called the Revised Version, or the English Revised Version. Not to be confused with the Revised Standard Version. This, it gets very confusing to see all the... I, I could put a, a diagram up here, but it probably make your eyes cross. It would make my eyes cross. Now we have the the standard version, or the authorized version. We have the revised standard, now we have the new revised standard. We have the American standard version, now a new American standard. We have the version from 77, we have the version from 1995, we have the version from 2020. You, you get the idea, there's lots of versions out there. Um, but the, there were some American scholars who were working with those who created this English revised version a hundred years ago or so. And they wanted to produce an American version of that, and so they called it the Revised Version Standard American Edition. So that's where we get the American Standard Version from. And among other things, 
these Americans wanted the words to reflect American spelling. So we talk about labor or color with a U, like the British spell it. They would spell it in the American way, C-O-L-O-R, L-A-B-O-R, and so forth. So that's, that's one minor difference, but also some of the ways that Americans speak are different from the ways that the, the English speak, as we well know. Another possible change in audience would be writing a children's Bible, or translation for those who don't speak English as a first language. There's one called the Today's International Reader's Version. So it's for people, say, in other countries who have uh, missionaries who speak English as a first language, but they're learning a target language, but they want to have a simplified English version to give to people who don't have a, the Bible in their own language. So if you can teach them some rudimentary English, they can get God's word understood to them without having to worry about words like propitiation and loving kindness and that sort of thing. And so that's certainly a valid consideration as you're thinking about how you're going to make your translation. Now, the ultimate reason for all these translations and all the good translations, all the ones that are written by those who who love Christ and love his word, the great motivation for the translation of the scriptures is so that people have God's word in their own language. And so you want to be as accurate as possible in the source. That is, you want to make sure the source is most like the originals that you can. So that's where that, those many manuscripts come in, Dead Sea Scrolls, that kind of thing. But you also want to make sure you're accurate in the translation. But that means making it understandable to readers. You can make things maybe proper in your English, in one sense. But if it's not understandable to your readers, then what's the point? And even the translators of the King James realize this, as much as there are some King James-only people who say, no, we don't want to ever change the King James, they say this, we desire that the scripture may speak like itself, as in the language of Canaan, that it may be understood even of the very vulgar. Now, that's not a pejorative term, like uh, back then, like it is now. This means that the common folk, those who didn't uh, know Greek and Hebrew or fancy English, they could still understand God's word. And William Tyndale said this before that, If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth a plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. Speaking to a a, a priest, an educated priest, he wanted a a plow boy who wouldn't necessarily have an education to be able to read God's word. Trying to figure out what to do here. I've got lots of notes left. I apologize. The question is, uh, I, I won't finish anyway, so do I skip over stuff or do I? Do I? Wait till next week. Sure? You guys aren't sick of this yet? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I, I worked a long time on this. Was, I probably studied more for this than I have for any other Sunday school lesson. Because when you're studying a passage of scripture, you kind of once you've studied it, written your notes, you've read all the commentaries, you get your hands on, you're kind of done. But you can do this stuff forever. And it was, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed all these websites compare the 1995 NASB with the 2020 NASB side by side. And you can look King James and all the the funny words that that we don't understand nowadays, like we saw before, you could really go down rabbit holes for a long time, and Joan can attest to that. Uh, so, the, the, my my yard shows <laughs> that I didn't work as diligently as maybe I did. I should have this week on that. But anyway, hopefully you find this interesting. I find it fascinating myself. Um, but having said all that, as we wrap things up, I just want to say that we can be thankful that we ha- can have these arguments. Uh, there are thousands of languages that have no word of God in them at all, and many, many millions of folks who don't have 
any of God's word in their language. And the fact that we have not only dozens of core translations, but revisions of those translations, and I can pull up many of them on my phone right now and benefit from all of them is a testimony to God's grace for us. And so we shouldn't neglect that gift to us. We must know God's word. It doesn't give us less responsibility. It gives us more responsibility. The fact that we have God's word given to us in this way gives us the opportunity to be more diligent. Well, any questions before we wrap up? I don't know why anybody wants to translate the Bible because it's... I read this quote from Jerome a week, a couple weeks ago. And he said, whatever I do, everybody's got their own favorite Latin translation. If I do it, they're going to hate me. It's going to be too much this or too little that. And so why even bother? But I'm glad people do because, as you say, the language changes. And especially other languages that don't have a, uh, let's say, a Christian tradition in their culture that... uh, how do you explain what a lamb of God is to somebody who doesn't know what a lamb is? How do you even you have a term for a word for God for a polytheistic group? And how do you describe what what what, what word you use for God? There's a story I heard once. I'm, I'm not sure how true it is, but it sounds good. Um, there's some guy in some place who was trying to translate the word of God into a, a target language, and they were struggling to find a word for faith. What does it mean to believe in something? And and there are words like that where there's not necessarily a good equivalent in another language. So what do you do? You invent a word. You try to figure out um, some way of explaining it, maybe a a phrase that translates it better. So he he was working with this native speaker to to do the translation and trying to struggle how to use word for faith. And his his worker just sort of at the end of a long day collapsed into a chair and just rested in it and. The story goes that the translator said, what did you just do? What do you call that you just did? And he, whatever the word was, he said, okay, that is our word for faith. That sort of resting on God in this case. And it's maybe not exactly what faith is, but it's, it, it's getting there. And so you, if you can get, the, get close, if you can, and then maybe as years go on, you can kind of nudge them towards better understandings of things or have a note. Uh, that, that's a, a good way of doing this. Yeah, translating things is is very difficult. Those of you who are multilingual know that. I'm not really, but uh, it's hard, but it's worth the effort, isn't it, to, to know God better? Well, any other comments or questions? No, they they were not even found until the middle of the 1900s, and the text receptus was back in the times when the King James translators were working, so that's even the century before. So the, the Texas receptus was a 1500s era document, so it was that was 400 years before they even found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The thing is, when we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's not the complete Old Testament, but a good portion of it, they get those Dead Sea Scrolls, compare it with the text, the Masoretic text, that was part of the... Uh, well, the TR is, let's say it this way... Um, it has the Hebrew and, and the Greek. We're talking about the Hebrew right now. Um, the Hebrew, the Masoretic text that was used for the translation of the King James, and this is the foundation of what we use today, was from around the, the 1000s, something like that. So that's a long time after the Old Testament was written, wasn't it? But when you get the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are from a couple hundred years before Christ, compare them with this translation, or the, the, the copies, I should say, from 
a thousand years later, they're very much the same. So the differences between the the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text was very, very minor. So more of a fine-tuning than an outright saying, well, this Masoretic text has it totally wrong. There's just a, a few little tweaks that, that I had a hard time finding those kinds of things um, when I was trying to find, find an example because there are so few of them. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness in giving us your word, giving us your word in our own language, so that while we could study Hebrew and Greek for years to give us understanding, we, we don't have to. And what a blessing it is that we can know your word, and maybe we don't understand all the the, the details we might be able to get and from the originals. We understand substantially what you want us to know. All we need to know for life and godliness is available to us. Uh, in our in the books in our laps or even on our phones or our computers. We're so grateful that we have your word that you've shown fit in your providence to give it to us. May we be faithful in our own day to show ourselves approved as those who study diligently your word, that we handle it accurately and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.